What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Core Consult RX podcast. I'm Mike Corvino, and with me, as always, is Cole Swanson. And today we're joined by two guests. One new guest and one guy you may or may not recognize. He's been on a couple times now. Uh, we have Drs. Kyle and Spencer with us today. Um, Kyle, welcome back, man. Uh, it's Spencer, great to meet you. How y'all doing? Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Doing great. Nice to be back and see you guys. Yeah, man. Good to see you too. Um, so how's, how's, uh, I guess Kyle, we'll start with you. How's, how's life been since you were, uh, P4 on the show last time? How's everything going now that you're, uh, doing the residency thing and all that? Yeah, I think it's the last time I think I was on, it was April and I'm still, I hadn't graduated pharmacy school, but now I matched to PGY1 here at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and that's going great. I'm loving it, doing all the residency things. So, you know, uh, long days, long nights, but honestly, it's been it's been a blast. And currently, I'm on my Mickey rotation this month of November, so that's been going great. And, you know, just living the dream, you know? <laughs> that's awesome, man. What's been, uh, what's been your favorite rotation so far? Honestly, so I started off my uh rotations with gen cards or like cards consult and back in august and that was honestly my first uh, cardiology rotation as a p4 i didn't have any cardiology rotations but i knew i was very interested in it and when i had that rotation in august i was like sold i was like i know i want to do a pgy in cardiology i was joking to like my other preceptors on my other rotation i was like i don't want to leave cardiology can i go back but yeah my very first rotation was actually awesome like the mid-levels were awesome the attendings were awesome um, I mean, it was just a great environment and yeah, it's been a blast just learning all things cardiology so far in that rotation. That's awesome, man. Are you thinking PGY2 staying in cards? Uh, yeah, I, I think I'm pretty sold going to PGY2 in cardiology. I was initially as a P4, I was like in between like cardiology and critical care, uh, for PGY2, but I'm pretty set on applying for a PGY2 in cardiology this upcoming cycle. So we'll see what happens and where, uh, if where I land up, uh, end up in this next cycle. So stay tuned. Good stuff, man. <laughs> so, uh, Spencer, what's going on, man? Nice to officially meet you. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's good to be on. I've been listening to some of your stuff the last uh, couple of days. It's been nice. Awesome, man. Thank you. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I am a heart failure transplant fellow here at UT. I've done all of my training post-med school um, at UT Southwestern Dallas. So three years of internal medicine, three years cardiology, and then about halfway through the advanced heart failure. So I'll be a heart failure transplant cardiologist next year. And I can tell you, we've been working Kyle hard. I see him uh, <laughs> late at night with big bags under his eyes and the CDIC. So it's good. That's awesome. Not get away with anything. <laughs> good. Yeah. Don't give him an inch, man. He'll take it. That's right. That's <laughs> no, that's right. awesome, man. So, um, you, you're done as of, uh, next year you said you'll be finished. Yeah. Yeah. We do. We go on that kind of July to June schedule. So June 30th, I'll be done with training. Finally. That's fantastic. Good. Um, does it feel like crazy to be at that point now where you're finally done with all this training? Yeah, I mean, it is what it is. We've done, you know, I'm multiplied board certified at this point. So it just kind of is, you know, more work as opposed to, you know, true training and you yeah. know, feel kind of like junior faculty. So that's so awesome. I guess you're probably, you know, interviewing and figuring out what you're going to do afterwards. You have a plan? That's right. That's a million dollar question. We'll see. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, uh, definitely doing interviews right now and, and looking for places to land long term. 
Nice. Any uh, specific spot you're like, ho- like, like area of the country or anything you're looking for? You trying to stay too away? many, too many. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. I won't give anything away. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, 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 that's <laughs> yeah. true. Go right on. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Wise. Well, that's awesome, man. So thanks, yeah. thanks for uh, joining us today. I know you guys are both busy, so this is uh, this is gonna be a good episode. Though. I can I can uh, already tell. So, um, you know, we've we've kind of touched on um, preserved ejection fraction like a little bit. Usually like in the amongst like uh, a patient's like overall you know case you know if we're doing a case presentation episode but we don't think we've really dived too heavily into hefpef as like a whole and and really broke down some of the newest literature and all that so um where do you guys kind of want to start off with uh, with this topic i know let's do some background information kind of talk through some of the pathophys all that good stuff yeah that sounds like a plan we could probably start off some background uh really definitions of hefpef um, heart failure preserved ejection fraction for the listeners. I'll probably just be re- referring it to HEFPEF. Um, probably go down with some like incidence, prevalence, and then uh, get into those risk factors, pathophys, and then some of like the older trials, and then kind of the more quote unquote popular trial that just came out, the Emperor Preserve. We'll get into that as well. Um, so I think that'll be a good layout for uh, the listeners in a general review of HEFPEF. What is that? How does that sound? Yeah, sounds, sounds good, great. man. Dude, yeah, whatever you yeah. think. Listeners, <laughs> will be, listeners will be all good, no matter which way we go. They'll like it. So, all right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'll just start off with some like background and like general definition of HEPPEF, and then we can start the conversation. So, really, uh, HEPPEF or heart failure was preserved ejection fraction. It's been kind of an increasing in prevalence and now really compromises like the majority of heart failure population. Um, there's been, we know there's been substantial like advancements in therapies and for like half ref populations, like the heart failure was reserved ejection faction, but we really at a standstill. I don't want to say standstill, but we have not as many therapies or uh, mortality saving therapies for our HEF-PEF population. Um, and really one thing that I'll define HEF-PEF as is like, it's like a, basically a clinical syndrome in which heart, the heart is unable to deliver the prerequisite amount of oxygen uh, to the tissues in relation to the metabolic needs. Or it does so, but only at the expense of like increased ventricular filling pressures despite like a normal injection fraction. And that's kind of like the main definition of what we think of like heart failure was preserved ejection fraction. So, yeah. And then just and I think that's a good description, Kyle. You know, a couple of things really with our HEFPEF patients that they come in, they tend to be a little bit older, a little bit more frail, as I'm sure you're going to get into. And they really describe being quite dysnic on exertion. So they have, you know, orthopnea in the middle of the night, fatigue when they're doing their typical daily activities, and just really kind of feel like crud. Really challenging population to diagnose because they tend to be older and have lung issues and all of these other things. So you're like, what is the shortness of breath from? Could it be a million things? One of the things is it could be HEFPEF, um, but really that dyspnea exertion is really kind of the classic hallmark sign. You know, close to 100% of people with HEFPEF uh, uh, will come in with, with those type of symptoms. Um, and then, like, like from a definition standpoint, look, I'm not, I shouldn't say definition, but looking at it from like an ejection fraction standpoint, um, how, how are you guys, how is it defining, like obviously reduced being less than 40, um, is it just, because there's always that weird middle ground between 41 and 49, how do y'all kind of look at that? 
as far as so, like so from our perspective really there's you know three major cohorts now so reduced ejection fraction and 40 percent or less a mid-range ejection fraction we used to we like to come up with lots of you know things to say hef mref is what we call it mref <laughs> or mid-range ejection fraction and then preserved ejection fraction is typically considered 50 percent above now to some degree and, and we'll talk about this later these are cohorts that are established for clinical trials to enroll people um, and it's really much more of a continuum uh, than that. But by strict, uh, you know, guideline definitions, that's how I would think of your ejection fraction breakdown. And there was that um, consensus statement put out in April um, where they, they kind of broke it down in that way, where they have the, the HEF MREF, which is my new favorite, by the way. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then they also had, I guess, the HEF, uh, heart failure with improved ejection fraction as well. So are those, are those adopted at this point into like being like pretty universally um, accepted, or is there still some pushback and whatnot as far as the actual nomenclature of that? I have a little bit of a different perspective, so I'll let Kyle answer this. Yeah, so really that... I, I brought it up actually on my first rotation too. Uh, they're asking about the ejection fraction. And I said, I called it hef meth. And, and my preceptor was like, looked at me with a funny face and was like, <laughs> what are you talking about? I was like, oh, like the ejection, like mid-range ejection fraction. They're like, what? And it's like, oh no, it's like, I guess I just like totally like botched the like hef m ref or I don't know. Like it just sounded funny when I said it, but um, going off of that, a lot of us, at least from the pharmacy world and like people I've worked with in the cardiology pharmacists, they have adopted uh, the HEF, MREF or MEF, however you want to call it, mid-range ejection fraction. Uh, that's one of the three classifications for heart failure right now. Yeah, and that's how we like to like look down on people, you know, if they don't know the terminology. <laughs> that's why we change it every couple of years to, to look cool as, as cardiologists, right? That's, that's key. But absolutely, you know, that's that's certainly the nomenclature that, you know, in the heart failure world we are, are using currently, which is subject to change um, as we have evolving therapies and different ways to define, you know, how the heart is doing. Unfortunately, in a lot of ways, the best way to uh, understand a patient is with ejection fraction but it has many, many problems. And so um, long-term, it will not be our, our way of uh, classifying, you know, heart-related issues or heart-related problems. But currently, it is, it's our best way. So what do you think uh, kind of the future of the better way would be? Yeah, so there's lots of, you know, different things that'll, that'll uh, kind of happen. So, you know, with the really understanding, you know, where a patient is coming from. And so it's a personalized type of approach so, you know, from a, a actual imaging standpoint, when we look at MRIs, we look at strain imaging, we have all these different ways of kind of understanding things, but eventually it'll be, you know, not what just injection practice that's the measure on, it is what is your genetics, um, you know, what are we doing from a proteomic standpoint and whatnot. So it'll be a lot more nuanced and really a kind of personalized medicine approach, um, which is, I think, the future of, of many, you know, different fields, but particularly cardiology. Yeah, that's awesome. So what about, this is a little off topic, but, um, you know, we've all kind of seen the, the new, the, the New York Heart Association classification, but, um, in that, uh, universal definition and classification paper that was put out in April, they started, they talked about, um, stage A through D being like at, at risk for heart failure, pre-heart failure, heart failure in advanced. Um, I, I mean, personally thought that it was kind of an interesting way of looking at it. I, I kind of like that. What, what do you guys think of as far as that classification and that, that staging? 
so we've gone to this type of staging across cardiology um, in our, our different issues. So, you know, valvular heart disease, we do a very similar approach. And I think it really gives context to what is happening in the life cycle of a cardiovascular disease. And, you know, theoretically, can we prevent heart failure from happening? So if someone thinks like, oh, hey, this person is an A now, you know, they're at risk, at least there's some red flag saying, hey, maybe we need to start therapies earlier. Um, and so I agree, I, I really like it as a conceptual framework uh, for the broader medical community, um, you know, think about heart failure and other cardiovascular diseases. Because I've always thought, you know, with the New York Heart Association classification, with, with like, you know, stage one being like no limitation on physical activity and all, it's almost like, well, why are we calling it something that it's kind of hard to like figure out how, what to do with that information? Again, not obviously not being anywhere near a cardiologist, but it just seems like such a weird way of kind of defining that first group. Um, I like the, you know, the new at risk or pre heart failure. I think that can also kind of dig, maybe point us in a direction like you're saying therapy wise too, as far as the prevention of that further decline of function and all that. Yeah, and NYJ classes are garbage. Yeah, sure. okay, so good. Oh, there. dude, I love it. That's my favorite. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah, I love I'm it. Playing into you here. Yeah, yeah. Dude, that's uh, great. No, but, but really, when you think of like how somebody does, and you know, they use uh, in a lot of trials, but oh, the NYJ improved from three to two. It's so subjective, like you're saying. And so, really, you know, you look at correlations, and uh, you know, the R values are are terrible um, with you know actually objective data, six minute walk test, KCCQ, or other type of patient reported outcomes which is kind of a big focus in cardiovascular research right now is how do you integrate true patient reported outcomes as opposed to just NYJ classes. You've got Mike really excited because now he can add in a new slide (laughs) for his PA students and it can just be the New York Heart Association uh, uh, classifications and then just garbage in all caps right underneath. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, besides Cole and I, I think you're the first person to use the term trash or garbage or something on the podcast with us. That's fantastic, man. Welcome. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, all right. So, um, Kyle, you want to jump into some of the uh, patho? Yeah. So, looking at patho wise, so one thing about heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, uh, really. It's been long perceived as like a disorder where contractile function is intact, but the myocardial relaxation is impaired. And that's kind of been traditional thinking, at least how I thought of it, right? But more data has come out over the uh, recent years that there's actually uh, many different pathogenesis that being at play. Um, kind of like the more popular one, I would say, uh, it's kind of coined by, I, I don't know if it's the right phrase to call him, I call him kind of like the godfather of heart failure, godfather of like all the SDLT2s is like Dr. Dr. Milton Packer. Um, he's kind of like the neurohormonal path, uh, hypothesis in terms of uh, pathophysiology in HEFPEF and heart failure in general. But one thing I I think it's very important in the pathophys is just really all the other comorbidities that are, that may be uh, coming into, that may be with the patient that may be influencing the the progression of heart failure. So especially like when you think about diabetes, AFib, CKD, I mean, obesity. And I bring that up because going back to the neuro, uh, neurohormonal hypothesis of chronic hypertension, which we see in almost about 50% upwards, sometimes up to 90% of our HEFPEF patients, um, chronic hypertension leads to neurohormonal activation that creates like a pro-inflammatory state can cause like arterial stiffness and and ventricular hypertrophy. So that can all worsen uh, your heart failure or at least, least, um, yeah, progress the heart failure. 
other thing also like when we're talking about obesity and diabetes so patients that have excess visceral fat this can lead to like another pro-inflammatory cytokines uh, hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia as well as like insulin resistance when you're looking at our diabetes populations this can lead to like micro microvascular dysfunction as well as like autonomic neuropathy which causes like cardiac stiffness and then like hypertrophy fibrosis and then eventually again heart failure so i think it's just there's more than one way to, more than one pathogenesis at play here. And that's how I think of the pathophysiology, especially with hef -Pef. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. And I think you bring up a good point. It's probably some things that you guys see every day, you know, in, in the variety of, uh, uh, you know, pharmacy world is all of these things, these comorbidities. And as people getting older, more comorbidities, et cetera, we're going to see more hef -Pef. Um, And just like Kyle mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, you know, we're seeing increased prevalence um, related a lot to age and, and comorbidities in, in the U.S. And I think a really important point, you know, on top of that is a lot of things are diagnosed as hef -Pef with which aren't. So um, uh, Kavita Sharma's group at, at Hopkins uh, took uh, just over 100 patients of HEFPEF sent to their HEFPEF clinic. So people were pretty sure they had HEFPEF and they did an endomyocardial biopsy in every single one. 14% were amyloid. So 14% of the patients were cardiac amyloid. So normal ejection fraction, older, have heart failure symptoms. And so, you know, it's this bucket to some degree because it's really challenging to effectively and truly diagnose what is HEFPEF, you know, with, with all of this going on. So definitely have your antenna raised, you know, if there's other things that point you to a different diagnosis, high output heart failure, amyloid, other infiltrative diseases of what is going on. Uh, and so HEFPEF is challenging to diagnose and in, in, in our cardiology clinics is uh, a lot of people, you know, kind of sigh when they see a hef uh, uh, you know, new diagnosis on their, on their list for the next day or whatever. So. But the ejection fraction clearly says <laughs> that's, yeah, that's exactly, that, exactly. <laughs> you mean to tell me it's not that simple. That's, that's unfortunate, but yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting that, um, and you said it was 14% of them. Were <clears throat> that's correct. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. 14%. Interesting. Um, okay. So, I, what's the, the, like the time, I mean, as far as patients that come in, you know, in presenting with, with true HEFPEF, you know, is, is it one of those things that they will eventually continue to decline and then the, you know, eventually kind of transition into HEFREF or is it because they're, I mean, you know, it's weird that they're older, you know, the older patients that were the ones that are presenting with HEFPEF, how does all the, the timeline of all that kind of work or is, is there a general consensus about that or way we could kind of follow that? Yeah, and it's definitely, there's not one continuum. Um, you know, the there's not kind of a preset. You come and start as HEFPEF, and then you slowly dilate out, et cetera. So I would think of those separately. True HEFREF dilated cardiomyopathy patients are distinctively different than this cohort of elderly HEFPEF patients who are thickened walls, who have, you know, a, a, so, you know, when we think of these things, you know, a person with HEFPEF, their pressure volume relationship is very different than somebody with HEFREF. And by that, I mean the amount of volume it takes to change their pressure significantly is much less than a HEFREF patient. And so by that, I mean, they can be three liters volume overloaded, not very much for a heart failure with reduced ejection fraction patient, but that can increase their filling pressure, their left atrial pressure by five to 10, and they can be profoundly disconnected or they can have profoundly elevated PA pressures when they exercise only, or you know, very, very raised when they exercise. 
so definitely different phenotypes. Um, and so, you know, I would, I would take those half ref young people or dilated cardiomyopathy, put them in one, you know, page, half put them in another page. There are some in the middle that are transitioning back and forth, et cetera. And so you have to think a little bit further about those, but there definitely are, you know, discrete phenotypes. Yeah, that, that, I like that because I always feel, at least from like, um, if you're doing like an overview, like in a school setting, you know, for med students, farm students, PA, whatever, you know, I've always feel like it's just like this overly simplistic, like timeline they just kind of presented as here's half pef, here's half ref. And it just sort of seems the way that it's always educated at that level that like, oh, everyone starts here and then they just end up here. I, I, I wish more, you know, I guess educational textbooks and when I would kind of make that clear distinction um that they are such different phenotypes I yeah like that. i think that's going to open up a lot of people's eyes because it's not a way that it's usually taught or thought of so that's great well they just need to listen to your podcast and they learn yeah. everything about <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. well, i don't know i don't know about everything but when we have guests like y'all on then maybe but uh if it's just cole and i just sitting here not talking our nonsense man i don't know about you know, i've only had 150 episodes and we've never put it that way so yeah <laughs> there you go <laughs> So, um, what about, you know, kind of going into some of the standards of care as of now, um, it's, that have been around for, um, you know, we know with HEF-REF, we have all these different studies that have showed like reduced mortality and, um, you know, hospitalizations, blah, blah, blah. Uh, not quite the same data, data we see with HEF-PEF. Um, so how is it kind of thought of, or has it been thought of, um, up until, you know, now, how do we kind of think of standards of care for HEF-PEF? Uh, what do you think? So really how I approach it, or at least what I think in my mind, um, I kind of try to first think of like a functional capacity, how we can increase that quality of life, kind of like daily exercise, all that non-pharmacological efforts just because as we there's been multiple trials that we can go through here in a bit like starting from i preserve in 2008 now we have uh preserved uh hf that just got released as well and, and emperor uh preserved in 2021 too that really there's hasn't been great data like you alluded to mike on pharmacological options that we can use to improve mortality but uh, that may be changing here soon. So when I come across like a HEF-PEF patient or like an outpatient ambulatory care or cardiology clinic that I've been in, um, it's just more for me, it's like, how can I increase their functional capacity, their quality of life, um, all the non-pharmacological and lifestyle modifications. That's kind of like my first thoughts. And Can you tell us a little bit about those? You mentioned I preserve and TopCat. I don't think people are as familiar with them because they're probably more familiar with the HEF-REF trials. So kind of what, tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, for sure. So I preserve got published, I believe in like 2008 and they had around like 4,100 patients with really enrolled patients with like an ejection fraction of 45% or more. And then back to those NYHA's classes, like of two, three and four. Um, and then also if you had like had signs and symptoms of heart failure, you were mm -hmm. also included in the trial. And they looked at ibisardin, uh, which is the ARB versus the placebo. And really the primary outcome was like a composite uh, death from any cause or heart failure hospitalizations. And really what that trial showed was that ibisardin really did not improve any outcomes for patients with HEF-PEF, which they uh, defined as a EF greater than 45%. Uh, a couple of years later, uh, TopCap, uh, kind of similar trial, uh, except it's a different agent, kind of one of our most, I think, 
popular trials before all these like SGLT2 inhibitors came out in terms of like HEF-PEF uh, possible therapies. And this was with the spironolactone versus uh, placebo. And it was also another like randomized controlled study that got published in 2014 um, and looked at what spironolactone would have uh, effect on any mortality benefit in HEF-PEF population. It had a pretty decent sample size, again, like 3,400, um, EF greater than 45%, and NYHS class two, three, uh, 1, 2, and 3, I mean. And what this trial actually showed was that spironolactone did not impact the time until first hospitalization uh, for heart failure exacerbation, nor did it have any influence on mortality. And I know this is probably the most, besides probably Paragon HF, which we'll, we'll get into next, but TopCat uh, is probably the most, I guess, cited literature I've heard on rounds or at least uh, debated literature. I know there's some possible controversy with it, like did it show some uh, benefit or not? Um, should we be prescribing it in HEF-PEF patients or HEF-MEF uh, or HEF-moderate range, mid-range injection fraction? So I think, uh, I don't know, Spencer, do you have any thoughts of the TopCat trial? Yeah, and I think just a couple of things, going back to your earlier question of what is the standard of care, you know, before these uh, couple of most recent trials, and really there is no standard of care for everyone who has a preservative exactly what you're saying, Kyle. And the key with hep patients is you have to figure out what is causing their issues. And so, you know, what's associated with hep morbid obesity, pulmonary hypertension, volume overload, age, AFib, you know, those type of things. And so the targeted therapies are at each of those comorbidities. You know, so treating people effectively with our new, newer diabetes agents to reduce both their diabetic components, so you decrease inflammation, but you also decrease weight with the GLP-1s, you are treating, you know, fluid overload with our loop diuretics, etc., you're treating your AFib with rate control and rhythm control type strategies. And so really the standard of care is treating each of those individual components. And that's the problem is there's these different uh, phenotypes. So if you want to ever read a lot more about HEPF, probably more than you ever want to know, um, there is a, a gentleman uh, a physician attending at uh, Northwestern, um, Dr. Shaw, and his Twitter handle is at HEPF. So it's pretty easy to, to get to. But utterly, you know, one of the probably most brilliant people in, in the HEPF world, and really he talks about these different phenotypes and our targeted, our therapies need to be targeted towards which, uh, uh, you know, bucket of, of HEPF patient we're dealing with. So I think those are great, you know, overview of the trials and, you know, unfortunately, uh, negative trials has ratios where, you know, kind of in a 0.7, 0.8, 0 0.9, depending on which study you're talking about with a crossover of one. So, you know, none were um, positive with some of the caveats we, we all know for have fat trials. The thing, TopCat is my favorite trial to talk about. So I'm glad you brought up the controversial nature of it. And uh, the, the reason why it's great um, is it was an international trial. So Eastern, Western, et cetera. And it looks like you're shaking your head, so you probably know this. Um, but what they looked at in the subgroup analysis is Western countries, so Argentina, United States, Canada, um, had significant improvements um, in uh, the patients they enrolled. The Eastern, so Georgia, the country, not the state, though it might be the same, uh, a little longer, and Ukraine, I think Russia, they had essentially no effect of uh, spironolactone. And so what they did, there was 300 of the thousands that they enrolled that they actually had urine and blood samples for. And so they ran tests seeing how much of the metabolites were in them. In the Eastern European countries, the metabolites were significantly lower or non-existent. So they enrolled less sick patients and they didn't have the medicines in their bloodstream. 
And so, oh yeah, exactly, exactly. So like, you know, from a, you know, typically I would never take a subgroup uh, analysis as real, uh, but I think in Topcat in particular, I think you can actually probably uh, uh, look at the North American data and be pretty confident that uh, it truly was effective for that group of patients that was enrolled. So are they thinking? So those are, you know, are they thinking like adherence issues with the Eastern countries or drug purity? Do they have any ideas? Didn't enroll patients with FF, first of all. Second of all, maybe we're selling it. I don't know. I don't know. It was pretty sketchy. Yeah, yeah spironolactone uh, goes for big bucks on the street. I can, I can tell you that. <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. right. No, I, I've always, I've always, because I, I don't know. I mean, again, coming from an area of more family medicine, primary care, I feel like that little i shouldn't even say little that gigantic caveat to that study is never really like discussed yeah, i'm like i brought it up a couple of times because i told i had that in my slides for my pa students and i'm like i mean if we have you know up until just the new you know recently we haven't had any really positive looking data for half pep i'm like i, I feel like we need to hang on to that that subset <laughs> from the west um with top cat so no that's that's all. i'm glad you brought that up because that's a really good point i always feel like it just top cat gets thrown out as like oh you know um this didn't show significance so oh well i'm like Whoa. yeah i mean the overarching p value is 0.14 there's definitely a trend as is consistent with you know all of the trials that we've mentioned and you know kind of getting into i think what i was going to talk about next the paragon heart failure scrutal valsartan looking very similarly cardiovascular death uh, first and recurrent uh, heart failure hospitalization as the the composite endpoint um which barely did not meet statistical significance 0.06 with again subgroup analysis females having significant benefits um, and then ejection fraction uh, having a, a significant uh, uh, effect as well. So one thing I want to bring up here, I think is a really good point, is all of these studies that we've talked about. So Charm Preserved, very similar to I Preserved um, a little bit earlier and with a different uh, um, ARB, um, Top Cat, as well as Paragon Heart Failure, the lower ejection fractions, so you know, depending on the study, 55, 57, or 60, or 62, the lower than that ejection fraction all had a hazard ratio that was significantly lower than one. Above that, that is where your hazard ratio went above one. So there does seem to be a difference between a lower quote unquote ejection fraction right around 55 to 60% as opposed to above that. And why is that? Um, you know, the patients are different phenotypically, we think, um, to some degree. Um, but uh, that's part of the reason that this whole ejection fraction might not be, you know, the, the 50 is the new 40 or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, but uh, there, there's definitely some heterogeneity even within these studies um, across the subject. And that goes towards the whole individualized uh, care because they still fall into into the HEFPEF range, but higher ejection fraction might actually see benefit. Exactly, exactly. Yep. And and just like you're talking about, so, you know, how to define this and, and use these things, um, which, you know, the FDA, to their credit, actually approved Paragon Heart Failure across the EF spectrum um, for this exact same reason that we're talking about. Um, and what's interesting in, in uh, Paragon uh, as well, there's a significant heterogeneity between male and female. Um, and, and, you know, with females having a, a higher efficacy that we haven't seen necessarily in other trials as much, um, classically underrepresented, underrolled uh, cohorts, uh, under-enrolled cohort in, in heart failure trials, unfortunately. 
And so, like when the when when Entresto got approved for um, now they just say chronic heart failure in general. Um, that that's you know for listeners that don't aren't familiar as much with the terminology and stuff. When you say the term chronic heart failure, we're just talking across the board any literally any type of no matter where you are on the spectrum heart failure in general. Yeah, that's correct. As far as FDA uh, guidance kind of on the issue, who do I put, you know, on secubital valsartan or and who do a lot of, of our attendings who kind of take care of these people? Um, essentially males under 53 to 55%, females under, you know, 57 to 60% who have what we consider kind of true heart failure symptoms, either based on right heart cats or based on echo guidance, elevated left atrial pressures without some of the other comorbidities um, that might be confounding the matter. Gotcha. Very good. All right, y'all. Where do you want to go with with uh, now? Where do you want to go now? Let's see, Spencer, you just want to briefly touch on. Um, I know, yeah, I mentioned like the the last two trials that that got presented at Heartfield Society of America probably this month uh, on like preserved HF and all this. Real quick, and then yeah. We'll let's talk. uh let's talk about Soloist, um, which came out in in 2020. Before we talk about Infra Preserved, um, very interesting study, and I'll I'll take the headlines on this one, Kyle, and then we can talk about Infra um, when we get to it. So, Cetagliflozin is an SGLT2 and SGLT1 uh, inhibitors, which works mainly in the guts, uh, SGLT1. Um, and so what they did is they enrolled recently hospitalized heart failure patients. Unfortunately, they ran out of funding, so I had to stop enrolling, didn't meet um, all of their criteria, which is going to affect some of the outcome. Ended up enrolling 1,200 patients, so still you know, reasonably sized trial, only followed them for nine months, primary endpoint of cardiovascular death or first heart failure hospitalization. Um, they enrolled people across the EF spectrum, so um, you know, didn't, didn't have a uh, 40% or lower cutoff like a lot of our heart failure trials do and was a profoundly positive trial um, for their primary outcome. So positive um, overarchingly and uh, positive across the ES spectrum with a hazard ratio of less than 0.5 for the HEF-PEF patient. So recently hospitalized HEF-PEF patients, um, cetagliflozin appeared to have a significant uh, effect on the heart failure hospitalization in particular, but also a little bit of cardiovascular mortality. So definitely an exciting trial. It didn't meet uh, the criteria that we would use to say, hey, this is guideline changing, um, but definitely set the table for Infra Preserved and some of our other trials that are upcoming and really made people eager to see the results um, at ESC where, where Infra was, uh, was uh, presented earlier this year. Nice. So, so I think 12, that kind of flows nicely. Oh, good. I was just going to say, so about 1,200 patients, a little bit smaller than like some of the, the, the top cat and whatnot. Do you think that's because it had to be shortly post-hospital that they were enrolled and wasn't just anybody with HEPF? Unfortunately, it was because of funding issues. Mm-hmm. So okay. they actually had their funding pulled, uh, both for enrollment and for uh, longevity of, of following them as long as they wanted. Uh, gotcha. So that was, that was the main issue. Is cetagliflozin approved in, because it's not, I don't, it's not approved in the States, but is it approved in other countries that you know of? Great question. Um, I actually don't know the answer to that. I would like to know, but uh, yeah, not approved yet. Got you. I'm not sure either. <laughs> and um, the, the actual like secondary outcome of cardiovascular death, you said that one was not significant in that trial, statistically speaking, correct? Yeah. And, and really, you know, what they, what they looked at is just this composite endpoint. Um, 
the absolute risk reduction for mortality looked promising, um, but unfortunately, you know, based on on what we have, could not make a firm statement uh, in that regard. Gotcha. I, I feel like a lot of the um, not I shouldn't say recent, but some of the more recent, I guess you could say, the studies that have come out. It's it's like hospitalization you know, seems to be the driving factor for the primary composite. We saw that with like Ivabradine and with Hefref and, um, you know, with uh, Verisigawatt. Uh, I just feel like it's like the hospitalization part was like, we can figure that out, but somehow we can't. <laughs> Is that, do you think that's just because we're, it, it's always looked at as such a simplistic, oh, here, you're giving this medicine, everything gets better versus treating the entire, all the comorbidities and all the different confounding factors that can make that person worse? Well, I think in the HEF-REF trials in particular, I think it is, uh, really shows how well we have done. You know, our absolute risk reductions are going to drop on quad therapy, and that's amazing. You know, we've taken your two-year mortality from around 35% um, to quad therapy at max doses, you know, 10 to, to 15%. And so really, you're seeing less of an effect size because we are blocking five pathways with four drugs. So really the, the quads therapies and the pillars of HEFREF treatment have, you know, and, and will continue to raise the bar for future therapies uh, need. If evabradine was the solo therapy for heart failure, you know, back in the beta blocker, would it have a mortality benefit? Probably. Mm, yeah. yeah. No, that's, a, that's a good point. I didn't think about it like that. That's good. Yeah. So, um, so is approved in Europe for um, type one diabetes and it's branded as Senquista. For type one, for like uh, yeah, overweight um, in addition to insulin hmm. and type one diabetes, yeah, hmm. interesting. And if I remember correctly, there was a New England Journal looking in type ones for cetagliflozin maybe five years ago. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it, uh, it, it didn't show the promise that I think they were looking for, because that's why the states didn't approve it. But um, that's interesting. Yep. Thanks, Cole. Yeah. Thanks, Google. <laughs> Good. <laughs> best Google in the, in the business. Um, old, old reliable. <laughs> there you go. Um, all right. So, uh, where, where to next Kyle? I guess let's get into the, the hot trial, the Emperor preserve that got published, uh, about a month or so ago or two months ago. Yeah. Right. Uh, let me track on my months where we're at, but yeah, <laughs> Emperor preserve. So this, uh, for your listeners that haven't read the trial or heard about it, is a multi-center, uh, double-blind, you know, parallel group randomized control trial. Had around close to about 6,000 patients around there. And paglifosin, uh, 10 milligrams versus a placebo. And it was looking at in adults with HEFPEF, uh, does empagliflozin reduce the risk of like composite cardiovascular death or hospitalization for heart failure? And one thing just, we'll go into like some, just laying it out, like we're going to inclusion, inclusion, inclusion slash exclusion criteria. We'll talk a little bit of baseline characteristics um, and we'll have a little bit of discussion about those two and then we'll keep going. Uh, so just give the audience a general overview, the inclusion criteria, uh, ejection fraction of greater than 40% uh, while clinically stable, uh, NYHA is class two to four. Uh, you had NT pro, pro BMP of greater than 300, if no AFib, but if greater than 900 if you had AFib. Of course, uh, patients 18 years of age and older, evidence of hypertensive heart failure or structure or heart disease, uh, carrot, and then stable diuretic use and a BMI less than 45 were like kind of the main uh, inclusion criteria. 
exclusion criteria, if you had any kind of like MI or cabbage or other major cardiovascular surgery, any kind of stroke or TIA uh, in the past 90 days uh, prior to randomization, you were excluded. Uh, any kind of cardiomyopathy based on like infiltrative disease, muscular dystrophies, hypertrophic, I can't even say that, hypertrophic cardio obstructive cardiomyopathy, uh, or any kind of severe valvular heart disease, you were excluded as well. Of course, any kind of acute decompensated heart failure um, was excluded or requiring any kind of inotropic agents. And then other thing is just like AFib or atrial flutter was the resting heart rate greater than 110. At screening, at time of randomization, you were excluded as well. So that was kind of like the inclusion exclusion criteria. And then uh, kind of the baseline characteristics. And after this, we'll talk a little bit about maybe uh, how might these characteristics affect the results that we'll talk about. So baseline characteristics, uh, mean age was like 72, 45% were actually female sex, 76% um, white, 4% black race, and 14% Asian. Um, actually around 81% were NYHA class two. Um, Average BMI was around 30, uh, determined at the echo detail. So mean ejection fraction was 54%, but looking at the breakdown, about 33% were in that HEF uh, heart failure with mid-range ejection fraction, 34% truly HEF-PEF, uh, and then, or like HEF-PEF was greater than 50, and then like ejection fraction greater than 60%, you had about 32% uh, patients. Um, other than that, uh, other kind of comorbidities that were important to know is about 91% of patients had hypertension, 49% had diabetes, 52% had AFib, and about 23% of the patients were hospitalized in the prior year due to a, a heart failure. And last thing to round out was mean GFR was around uh, 60, 61. So I guess I'll just open up the floor to any kind of like characteristics you think that are notable or things that you guys noticed that may like affect the results or you just thought were interesting to point out? Well, one thing, and I've actually, uh, this is a legit, just straight up question because I've, I've, <laughs> I haven't looked at the answer for this, but like why 10 milligrams? Because like with Empareg outcomes, they did 25 milligrams. Is there a specific reason why they went 10 milligrams? I feel like Depagliflozin used their full dose, but Empagliflozin did not. So there were, um, if I remember correctly, Impareg was, uh, I think they had multiple dosages or one of the, one of the EMPA trials had multiple dosages with no difference, um, you know, between, um, and then DAPA was, was 10, uh, DAPA heart failure. So there's been multiple trials looking at the effect of different dosages and 10 versus 25 did not have an effect is the short answer. Gotcha. So so that's why we've, we've gone to 10. Gotcha. Okay. Except at the VA, we give them 25 so they can cut it in half and take 12 and a half. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and, and what was interesting, I, I, I think uh, an important point too is their baseline treatment. So greater than 80% were on beta blockers, 80% were on RAS inhibition at baseline and 40% were on MRAs. Um, so a, a very almost HEF-REF uh, treated population. And those are higher rates of treatment than we see in our global um, heart failure population as a whole. So kind of an interesting uh, aside. Yeah, I like that you bring that up because usually when you think of like, especially I thought that was very interesting, like 80%, 85% of uh, HEF-PEF, I guess, technically speaking, were on beta blockers. That's, at least from my standpoint, that's not really like kind of quote unquote standard of care. Like, I don't really see that many patients on uh, with beta blockers in its HEF-PEF population. So that was definitely something interesting to point out. 
And a lot of it's driven by comorbidities. Mm-hmm. So like you said, uh, more than 50% have atrial fibrillation and whatnot. So there's other, you know, other indications um, and not necessarily guideline directed uh, beta blockers for HEPREP, but just beta blockers in general. So there's no like contraindication to using a beta blocker necessarily with HEPREP. Is that correct? Correct. Good question. It's a good question. Um, so there are, there is data that shows in HEPFAF patients, uh, beta blockers do decrease VO2 max, do decrease quality of life. So is there contraindication? No. Um, should you have pause in a true HEPFAF patient on a beta blocker? Uh, you know, I, I sometimes will take people off if there's not another indication. One of the other things is a lot of these people have CAD, mm-hmm. um, high high burden of CAD. So you know there are other indications and kind of mixed issues. What about non dihydroperidine calcium channel blockers? No contraindication as as far as you know. A lot of these people are on it uh, given blood pressure related problems. But no data as far as like any sort of benefit or anything. Not that I know of. Okay. It's been looked at HEPREF with mm-hmm. a slight, uh, actually, uh, uh, negative effect mm-hmm. or a, a slight issue, but uh, not that I know of in HEPREF. I'm sure it's been looked at. I just don't know the data, which makes me think it's negative. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, good. So I guess we'll get into some of the results of the trial, and then we'll discuss some of these interesting findings. So really, the reporting uh, from the trial, looking at the primary outcome, the primary outcome was deaths from cardiovascular causes or hospitalization for heart failure. And what they saw was looking at the, the comparative versus placebo. Was, and the primary outcome was 13.8% versus 17.7% with a hazard ratio of like 0.79. Uh, statistically significant was like confidence interval like 0.65 to 0.9. Of course, p-value was less than 0.05. I calculated the number needed to treat was 30 on the primary outcome, so looking promising. Secondary outcomes was hospitalization for heart failure uh, and deaths from any co- from CV causes. Looking at hospitalization for heart failure, it was 8.6% versus 11.8% with a hazard ratio of 0.71. Uh, confidence interval of 0.6 to 0.83 was a number needed to treat of 31. And then the second secondary outcome was death from CV causes, and that was a 7.3% versus 8.2% hazard ratio of 0.91 and 95% confidence interval of 0.76 to 1.09, so across one on that one. And then really looking at the adverse events, um, they looked at patients with any kind of like serious adverse events. It was really like 47.9% versus 51.6%, uh, really not statistically significant. Genital infections, uh, a little bit more, of course, in the empagliflozin was 2.2% versus 0.7% in the placebo. Hypotension, 10.4% versus 8.6%. And then symptomatic hypotension was the other one they looked at. And it was basically the same, like 6.6% versus like 5.5%. So I guess I'll just we can have a little discussion, like any interesting findings, anything that stood out to you in terms of the trial findings. Well, and I think it was interesting too, because the decline in EGFR was also um, statistically significantly, um, uh, it, the, the decline was less in the patients that were on empagliflozin, which I think is, um, you know, even though like numerically, it's not that big of a difference, but um, protecting the kidneys during with everything else that's going on and the patient, I feel like is a good side benefit to it. Do they look at any threshold? Yeah, they look at any threshold for um, the ejection fraction where they didn't see benefit above a certain because I know that you know mentioned that the 40 to 50 percent range had the greatest does it seem like the higher the ejection fraction the less likely they are to have benefit? 
And you just set that set up on a platter. I love it. So uh, a, a couple things uh, before I get to that, because I think it's a really important point. The first is that at 18 days is when we first saw, saw statistical significance, 18 days only. And so, you know, starting therapy is important, but also remember not starting therapy has a consequence. So if you have a HEPFAP patient and you don't start them on an SGLT2, you cause them to have an increased risk of heart failure hospitalization. And so we don't tend to think as humans of risk of not doing something, but 18 days, you know, it's pretty amazing that, you know, very few people even follow up from a hospitalization uh, at, at that point. So I think that's kind of the first point. The second point is a little bit of a nuanced uh, trial um, type of thing. And so, you know, what do we really care about as patients or what does a, a patient really care about? Do they care about the first time they get hospitalized? Or do they care about something else, time that's in the hospital, multiple times of hospitalization? And so the primary and secondary endpoint are different and try to address both of those. The first is, you know, CV death or uh, first heart failure hospitalization. It's pretty typical for a heart failure um, trial as a whole. But their secondary endpoint was heart failure hospitalizations and recurrent hospitalizations, which showed an even greater reduction, 27% relative risk reduction, as compared to the 21% relative reduction of the primary combined endpoint. So really important to think of. There's other um, more uh, kind of novel things that we're using now in trials, time at home, um, which kind of excludes your time and sniffs and, and whatnot. And I think will be important um, and, and will come out later as well as patient-reported outcomes or PROs, which we can talk about. Getting to your point about ejection fraction, so we talked about that. I think we set the stage earlier you know, with the other trials and looking at that 55, 57, 62. When you look at it, it's definitively true in this trial as well. So the secondary endpoint, so total hospitalizations for heart failure, there's a very distinct cut point above 60% ejection fraction where the hazard ratio is actually above one. Um, and the two others, you know, uh, 40 to 50 and 50 to 60, it's distinctively even lower. The P for trend in that is 0 0.008. Um, and so there's definitely a different cohort. Now you think of why. So, you know, it's a different cohort, it's different people, blah, blah, blah. You look at the people enrolled, they're older, more female, have more comorbidities and have lower relative BNP for their comorbidities. Um, and so NT-PRO is associated with heart failure, but it's also show, associated with AFib. So if you have more AFib, you should have higher NT-PRO BNPs for the same quote-unquote um, heart failure severity. And so these people had similar NT-PRO BNPs, but more comorbidities, including AFib. And so it's, we think probably a different cohort that had less HEFPEP, more other comorbidities driving shortness of breath and heart failure type symptoms. Um, and that's true when you look at uh, uh, similar findings side by side between uh, Paragon as well as um, Imper Preserve. So there's definitely there's definitely attenuation at the upper ejection fractions across these uh, studies. So very very interesting. And yeah, the baseline blood pressure in these in the the treatment arm was like 131 and some change systolic. I mean, that seems like a very reasonable average blood pressure. I mean, I don't know. I mean, a lot of patients that are coming to my clinic are not, not uh, coming in with systolics at 131 when they're on, you know. So I, I feel like is almost, I'd be really curious to see what this study would look like with a cohort of more uh, more sick patients and like, or like a sicker, I should say, um, to see if that the results would be more profound or if that would, they would just kind of look similar. And the hard part is you're thinking of it as a HEF-REF study, 
you know, the HEF-REF studies certainly lower blood pressure is sicker. In the HEF-PEF studies, that is a HEF-PEF patient. 90-something okay. percent have hypertension. This is a classic HEF-PEF patient um, that you're describing. And so I, I think the enrollment was pretty reasonable for real-life uh, HEF-PEF patients. Not all, but um, I think pretty reasonable. Okay. So are you starting the this in, portion, um, in any, uh, any patient with HEF-PEF? With uh, that? Absolutely. That absolutely, ejection fraction, absolutely, yeah, yeah, and and we were already for the record. If we could get the insurance company to pay for it, we were we were prescribing it, uh, using it for any indication that we that we could um, as a whole. Have and, uh, you know your, your no? Go ahead, sorry. Oh yeah, and, and just your question of who do we start it in? Any diabetic that has risk factors? Some studies out of our center, um, particularly if you have elevated NT pros, not even to this level, but, you know, moderately elevated, elevated troponins. We've shown that starting therapies earlier in that risk profile patient prevents heart failure um, and, uh, uh, you know, is, is significantly uh, better for the patient. So we start them as soon as we can across the, the cohort. One of the middle authors is an attending here on every single SLT2 trial. So <laughs> oh, we've been awesome. using them for years. Yeah. Um, as far as cost goes, has that been a big factor for y'all as far as getting these patients access to the SGLT2s? That's like a great question for Kyle. Yeah, so <laughs> at least from the inpatient side, from our formulary standpoint, inpatient, we don't have it, at least from the last time I checked. Uh, we can't prescribe it, but we can start it like as they're going on discharge. And I know when I was on uh, my cardiology rotations, it has been uh, a barrier, uh, more so than I thought it was going to be. So I don't know if it's just the type of patient population we have here, or the patient population I encountered that month or two that was in cardiology. But at least from my short experience trying to get patients on uh, an SGLT2 as we're leaving the hospital, it has been. I haven't experienced mu as much, I guess, uh, roadblocks from a, when I've worked in like an outpatient ambulatory clinic uh, so far. But again, most of those outpatient ambulatory clinics, I'm starting it with the indication of like diabetes plus mm -hmm. like uh, any other kind of cardiovascular disease. So thinking about it not being on formulary at the hospital or even non-formulary on a patient's insurance, I remember back when the um, Impreg trial was coming out, the Canvas trial was coming out, and Farsiga didn't have their trial out yet. And the reps would come around and be like, oh, yeah, you know, it's a class effect. Prescribe Farsiga, it's fine, class effect, all that all that good stuff. Um, do you, you know, for a patient who can't get access to, uh, to Jardians, do you think it's reasonable to try one of the other ones? Or are you like, we have data in Jardians, so that's that's what we need to go with? We strongly believe it's a class effect. Um, our, so we, I work at two centers, Parkland and, and uh, the University Hospital, so it's different experiences. Um, we're very fortunate in our county hospital system um, through our PNT and, and whether we have, have excellent access um, for our unfunded or our Parkland funded patients. And so pretty remarkable. So I'm just actually pulled up the data in front of me um, in our HEFREF population. So again, HEFREF, not HEFPEF. Um, that are followed in cardiology clinic, 25, 26% uh, of our patients are already on SGLT2s. That's increased consistently by about 3% per month over the past um, uh, six to 12 months. And so we're up to around 30% now. This is from April. At UT Southwestern, people followed in, hearty, in heart failure clinic, 42% um, are on SGLT2s. Cardiology clinic, 26% are. 
not in either only seven percent are. So certainly there's an um, attenuation with people not seen in cardiology clinic uh, versus those who are. Um, so we're very fortunate at our county hospital, uh, Hagelclosen has given us a, a reduced price. And so we prescribe it very frequently um, and a lot of our people are on it. Shockingly, it's easier at our county hospital than our private hospital to get people on uh, SW2s. Um, certainly we have an issue of inpatient starts. Um, it's currently not on our formulary at our university hospital. At Parkland, we started inpatient. It's on our formulary. So it's, it's a really actually a cool environment. Uh, this is a shout out to UT Southwestern and Parkland of our county hospital system really putting patients first um, and being on the cutting edge of, of medicine. So a great place to train across the board um, and, and, and practice down here at, at UT in, in our county hospital system. So definitely issues with insurance, particularly at the university hospital. Yeah, that, that's funny you mention it like that because so I work in an FQHC and uh, that's where I, where I do my ambulatory care stuff at. And you know our cash price for someone who doesn't have insurance or really anybody um, for, for like Jardians, for example, is ten bucks. And so as I've gotten so spoiled with like you know just f freely like starting patients on these meds without even thinking about the cost of it. That if I ever have to go to like a regular like family medicine clinic or something, I'm in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing a lot of PAs. <laughs> yeah, yeah I agree. Like, oh, like just one other thing. Like when I first started here at UT Southwestern, um, back in August, uh, I do a lot of discharge caps. They're like optimizing like patients' regimens when they're going home, uh, post like heart failure exacerbation or whatever you may have it. And like every like, but I guess the first week is like, can we, I'll be like, I want you to start like a pack of those. And when you start this and this and this, and it's like, Kyle, like whether it's like the middle level or the tennis, like we don't have it on formula. I was like, what do you mean you don't have it on formula? Like, yeah, we have it in Parkland, but we don't have it here. I was like, how do we get it here? <laughs> like, so we're from a pharmacy standpoint, we are actively in talks of trying to get it on formulary here. Just gotta go through like that whole PNT, uh, you know, all those meetings, all those requirements and stuff. But hopefully that will be uh, on formulary soon, so we can uh, mirror our mirror our county hospital. Uh, partner over here at Parkland. It's right. Right, I'm gonna right hold across. you to that, Kyle. It's not <laughs> hey, on a couple I, months. I I know where to find you. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm a resident. I only got so much power. <laughs> so, Almost, all of a sudden, that confidence just sort of shifted a little bit. <laughs> Well, that's fantastic, guys. I love it when we can have, uh, you know, kind of a game-changing, uh, practice-changing trial. Maybe not practice-changing for you because I've been doing it for years, but for many, I think it would be. So are we anticipating, um, you know, guideline updates at some point? Uh, we got new trials in the down the pike. Uh, what's it looking like? Yeah, I think there's two things to say. The first presented at HFSA, uh, trial called Preserved HF, which is a PRO trial, 500 patients, I think randomized, 100, 300 were randomized, 115 each arm. KCCQ, which is kind of our quality of life scale, um, significantly, significantly improved on average, uh, I think like five or six points, probably one of the biggest heart failure improvements in KCCQ. So definitely improves people's quality of life with FF as well. And then uh, fortunately, in the near future, we have DAPA's equivalent. It'll be called the DELIVER trial, um, and we'll kind of augment our understanding. There's a lot of really interesting data that's coming out as far as why do SGLT2s SGLT work across the spectrum. Um, and so those are, if you like, you know, really mechanistic uh, trials and mechanistic understandings. Keep your eye out. They're coming up literally every week. That's what Twitter's for, right? Is to keep you informed of <laughs> trials. Yeah, literally Twitter and Instagram, that's where I learn half the stuff. And like when I do journal clubs for like residency stuff, 
I think like almost all my journal clubs, I first see them on Twitter. I'm just like bookmark. I'm like saving those for later. <laughs> but oh, go ahead. I was gonna, well, I was gonna say I, I'm glad you. I actually used you as an example. I gave a talk at uh, for like our local MUSC's uh, APHA chapter. I used you as an example of why I think more students should be using Twitter and things like that as opposed to this idea of like oh you need to you know, cancel your social media because God forbid a resident, you know, program residency program, see you doing something stupid. I'm like, well, or just don't do something stupid maybe. And then you don't have to worry about it. But, um, you know, I used you as an example, as I said, you know, he, he's putting great content out and, and uh, there's so many people. I'm like, there, there's no other place that you're going to get that, those type of minds all coming together and just talking nerd over the, you know, water fountain. Um, it's just one of those things that, uh, um, I don't know. I, I really believe that's something I feel like I've said a gazillion times on this podcast, but it's, it's, I'm glad that, you know, to hear it echoed by other healthcare professionals. It's good. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, that's how we got connected, Mike, yeah. through Twitter or Instagram. Through the uh, gram. Yeah. So, I mean, for all the students out there, medical residents, what, what have you, I mean, it's a great place. You don't have to put out any content. I mean, there's a bunch of people out there putting content. It's just a great resource for any kind of information or just connecting if you want so highly encourage highly recommend 100 percent agree mm-hmm. you want some key take-home points about half yeah absolutely yeah. i would love I feel it like it's that time all right here here are my key key take-home points the first is hep diagnosis is really challenging um so you know older people with those comorbidities we talked about think about it if something doesn't make sense if they're too thick etc think about an alternative diagnosis amyloid in particular some other, the other infiltrative cardiomyopathies, reach for a right heart cath or an exercise right heart cath if you can't find the answer based on an echo. So that's kind of our, our first teaching point is really you have to work to diagnose sometimes. The second is, um, you know, this was a, a, an excellent trial, really nice first positive trial in HEPCAT in the space. Um, and, and, you know, very excited about it, even though it didn't have a frank mortality benefit. Um, the, the things that we see are real heart failure hospitalizations affect patients are a big deal. The PROs, patient reported outcomes are, are real. Um, the third is these effects are early. So just like in re- reduced ejection fraction, not treating someone appropriately in the appropriate amount of time is hurting that patient. And so you know, getting people on therapies early. And then, you know, I think there will be a new paradigm of ejection fraction. So this understanding of heart failure in the future is you know, less echo guided uh, and, and more kind of comprehensive care. And, and hopefully we can get away from that one number on echo that, that everyone kind of focuses on. That's good. What are yours, Kyle? What do you got? That's what awesome. Take away? I don't know if I can talk that, but I think one <laughs> key thing I would like uh, our learners just to be aware of, you kind of alluded to uh, about a couple of minutes ago, Spencer, is just the mechanistic uh, mechanism, at least, of how SGLT2s may exert its effect. So really, right, they were studied and brought to market because it was supposed to be an awesome diabetes drug because it helps like uh, reduce reabsorption of filtered glucose in the tubular lumen and all that good stuff, right? But as this more data is coming out, uh, actually SGLT2s work in numerous different ways. I mean, from helps like upregulation of CERT1 and downstream effects, which can lead to like reduced like oxidative endoplasmic reticulum and reduces like myocardial stress. It can also interfere with like the sodium hydrogen exchange in the heart and kidneys, which can limit like sodium avidity as well as like cardiomyocyte injury. And then another like pathway that is thought to affect is reduced mass and biological activity of like adipose tissue. 
And that goes back to someone like the pathophys uh, pathophys, where it's like it can help reduce inflammation and like decrease like microcirculatory dysfunction, which thus all this working together helps slow the cardiopathic process and reduce serious heart failure events. So again, this is like all new stuff coming out for those that I think, again, Milton Packer uh, put out a awesome review. I think it was this year, like in August, looking at SGLT2 inhibitors in both like HEF-REF and HEF-PEF. It was in a Jack, I believe. Um, I can, uh, when this episode gets released, I'll like link this, um, that article to the podcast as well too on Twitter for those, if anyone wants to like read it. But I think it's a very interesting viewpoint. So yeah, SGLT2s, just know like different mechanisms and how they work to reduce like the cardiopathic process and help uh, and have PEF and have ref. So I think that's one of my biggest takeaways also. And have mm, ref. Hemref, half mef, something like that. <laughs> just got it down now. I like that. <laughs> uh, one thing today. That's good. <laughs> that's good stuff. So um, obviously, if you're going to be linking stuff, to, uh, Kyle, tell people where to find you on Twitter. Yeah, so on Twitter, you can find me at kfisher underscore 10. Um, that's Fisher was an F-I-S-C-H-E-R. I don't know why my last name spelled like that. Uh, just, just accept it. I mean, but yeah. Like then, the bird. I think. Yeah. <laughs> and then, exactly, a kingfisher. And then Instagram, it's not It's not the same. I should have kept it consistent. Mm. I don't, again, Classic rookie mistake. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, but shout out to Mike, though, for putting me making me get an instagram too this is almost a year going on and that's where i've been posting a lot of my infographics so i got a lot of good feedback from your listeners and followers too mike but yeah instagram is at kg fisher x it's supposed to be like yeah it's supposed to say like rx at the end but like the fisher on the r's and the x something like that i don't know right on something like that it, <laughs> it, it sounded really good in theory and so yeah, yeah then, like, i created it and i'm like oh, i don't know like, like oh no it's like, too oh, late whatever. it's already up yeah. that's awesome the no. tenth, it's a roman numeral yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah kingfisher 10 no that's good though yeah. i am glad you got on the gram i feel because and the reason i always push that is just because i feel like that younger generation the you know the early 20 year olds or, or you know whatnot are, are more on that platform so since that's the next generation to educate mm-hmm. you know that's why i push that one but i am i think twitter also is such a useful tool that a lot of people um that in the younger group don't take advantage of so yeah i'm a big believer in both of them just different uh different styles at all um spencer do you have any uh stuff like that on social you want to plug yeah absolutely i'm especially during the cardiology conferences i'm active um at spencer carter 55 is my uh twitter handle and uh you know i i definitely consume but also occasionally uh put things out there that's awesome yeah and i'll put y'all's handles and stuff in the show notes as well so people can find you and i'll link it on my instagram and everything but um yeah any anything else that um we need to talk about before we get out of here any closing remarks anything Eugene Braunwald, who everyone else would say is the godfather of cardiology other than Kyle. I don't know. <laughs> this is a new age, I guess. I don't know. Uh, you know, his uh, most recent comment is SGLT2 inhibitors are the new statin. And uh, I think that's I think that's true. Wow. That is quite a statement, huh? Yeah, that's awesome. For sure. We're going to get him on the podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. Uh, th- um, yeah, thank you guys both for kind of taking the time to do this. I know it's... Uh, 
you know, later in the day, but, um, you know, are both busy. So I really appreciate your time. Um, but that was good. And we need to do, uh, this again, you know, in the future. So, um, thank you guys for so much for listening. Um, I hope, uh, that was helpful and make sure you guys check both of these gentlemen out on, uh, the old Twitter and, um, and make sure you, uh, follow them and keep up with their, with what they got going on. Um, if you have any questions or comments or anything for Cole or myself, uh, our emails um, will be in the show notes and you can also reach us on any of the social media platforms. Um, you can send me a text at 415-943-6116. If you have any questions, I actually got a really, really good, extremely complex patient case uh, via that texting platform yesterday, which I thought was awesome. Um, and uh, it, you know, if you have, we'd love to hear your comments, anything like that, or you know, if you have want us to add anything or go over a certain topic or anything like that, definitely let us know. Um, also check out Patreon. Um, if you go to www.patreon.com slash core consult RX, um, we have our more like traditional lectures and stuff like that with PowerPoint slides and all that. It's only three bucks a month. So you can down, you can subscribe for a month, rip off our hundred lectures that we have on there and thousands of PowerPoints and then just cancel. It's, it's fine. <laughs> um, but we're keeping your $3. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you guys so much for the support and, uh, we'll catch you next time. Have a good night. <laughs>